This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Walking in the Lord's Way. In the first half, Jennifer Brinkerhoff Platt shares her address, Walking in the Light of His Love. Then in the second half, Rosemary M. Wixom speaks on the covenant path. Not long ago, while I was here on this campus teaching a New Testament class, we were focused on the life of Jesus Christ. And at the conclusion of a discussion about the last days and the hypocrisy that will be found therein, a student approached me and asked me an important question. His motives seemed pure to me as he reflected. The scriptures state that in the last days, if it were possible, even the very elect will be deceived. Sister Platt, how will I know him? I don't want to be deceived. My first thought was to turn him back to the scriptures that we had just studied together and to re-explore what we had studied, but the Spirit told me to do otherwise. I was prompted to ask him a question, much like what I would imagine the Lord might ask, because he has done it at various other occasions. Do you know him now? I asked. Is he familiar to you? Or in other words, in the words of Jesus, what think ye of Christ? His eyes filled with tears. No, I don't think I know him as I should. Please, will you teach me how I can come to recognize him? That's a humbling moment as a teacher. His honest inquiry is reflective of every disciple's desire. How can we sincerely become seekers of truth, coming to know and recognize Jesus Christ so that we are not deceived? Certainly, we live in the last days, and many are deceived for, as the scriptures state, Satan is abroad in the land, and he goeth forth deceiving the nations. Yet the role of the adversary is essential to our agency. He is total darkness in contrast to the light of Christ's love. We can choose to walk in Christ's light. The Lord has established a pattern that, when applied, helps to avoid deception. The promise is that those who, quote, prayeth, whose spirit is contrite, the same is accepted of me if he obey my ordinances. He that speaketh, whose spirit is contrite, whose language is meek and edifieth, the same as of God, if he obey mine ordinances. And again, he that trembleth under my power shall be made strong, and shall bring forth fruits of praise and wisdom according to the revelations and truth that I have given. Simply stated, those that emulate the Savior by walking in the light of his love, observing God's covenants with real intent, and follow the Holy Ghost— with humility, will be protected from deception. The Savior establishes a pattern of obedience for every one of us to follow. I love the hymn, Our Savior's Love, the theme for our conference. The author of the text, Edward Leroy Hart, talks about the process that he went through in learning to discern truth from God. He reminisces that the inspiration for writing the words of the hymn grew out of a simple reflection of a simile from an everyday observation while shopping. I like that. He had watched shoppers in a fabric store assess the true color of a piece of fabric by holding it up to the sunlight, as the natural light gives the most accurate representation of the color. Likewise, the most accurate assessment of whether something is true or not is in the light of our Savior's love. When we hold our character to the light of the sun, he will show us the truth of who we really are and correct our course so we can make adjustments to more accurately reflect his light. Our challenge is to prioritize our time to perform works in the natural light of the Lord rather than in an artificial, dim light of the adversary. As we seek daily to walk in the light of his love, we come to recognize him, know him, and pattern our lives after his works while becoming worthy receptacles of his light. The words of living prophets and apostles draw clear and accurate light into our lives. When we study and review their teachings on a regular basis, we see specific ways to refine our discipleship. Choosing to act promptly on an invitation given from conference speakers will increase our awareness of the Spirit in our lives, while also refining and developing our character. 
Through my study of attributes such as faith, charity, humility, hope, I recognized the intentionality of the Savior and his teachings. While being deliberate and purposeful is not one of the listed attributes, I believe that the attribute of being intentional shapes all of the Christ-like attributes. Exploring the various teaching methods of the Messiah helps to illuminate his intentional and deliberate approach to life. As the master teacher, our Lord utilized techniques to best meet the needs of whomever he was interacting with. There were times when he used his surroundings to help others, to understand what was intended for them to learn. Ordinary circumstances became magnificent with the touch of the master's hand. Questions invited learners to self-reflect and search for understanding. Miraculous healings evidenced his power to heal not only the physical, but the spiritual ailments of broken souls. Objects such as nets, coins, wheat, and various other things anchored gospel truths in the visual memory. Likewise, the context of learning was as important as the content of his teachings. The Sermon on the Mount is more fully understood when we imagine gathering on the Galilean hillside that became the schoolroom for the autobiographical sketch written in his deeds. Consider the profound meaning Jesus brought to the annual ritual of the Feast of Tabernacles. This joyous celebration included the lighting of four menorahs in the temple courtyard to signify the covenant people's roles as the light unto the nations. It was amidst the brilliance of the four 75-foot-high lighted menorahs that Christ declared, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. This ritual now acclaimed meaning beyond an annual celebration to ignite the house of Israel to truly illuminate the world. Indeed, the Lord's previous teachings, ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on the hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Becomes a call to come and fan the flame of our faith in the light of the love of the Lord. Jesus taught in parables to veil meaning and to give understanding to those with faith and intelligence sufficient to understand. Likewise, our lives become living parables, filled with experiences that can be viewed as either mere stories or customized tutorings, fitted for our own learning and understanding. Christ's teachings, like every moment of his life, are purposeful and focused on his mission of fulfilling the will of the Father by drawing men and women unto him so they might return to the Father. As I studied Christ-like attributes, I have felt an increase of a desire to bring meaning to everything I do. When we seek to be like him, we will perform even menial tasks with greater intention. Bringing meaning to our day-to-day tasks helps us to walk in the light of his love. I believe that many of us do good things every day, but perhaps have become complacent or even routine in the performance, forgetting to acknowledge or recognize the power of doing small and simple things with great meaning and purpose. For years now, I have studied the power of ritual and the impact intentionality has on the most mundane occurrence. Rather than performing our day-to-day routines with little thought or effort, the most ordinary event can become rich in meaning. This is a practice of emulating Christ's approach to life by bringing purpose into the details of our own lives. We can ritualize the ordinary. Rather than associate the word ritual, which we sometimes do, with pagan ceremonies or animal sacrifices, will you consider the idea of ritual as a performing an act with sacredness by seeking for symbolic meaning? Rituals are a fundamental aspect of the ordinances and covenants associated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Professor Alonzo Gaskell researches rites and rituals, and here's what he has noted. Mormons are traditionally not an extremely ritualistic people, at least not in their Sunday worship, nor in their day-to-day lives. 
Consequently, some find very little meaning in ritual. Indeed, some saints struggle to see symbolically, per se. One LDS scholar suggested that we Latter-day Saints have become an asymbolic society, and as a result, we do not understand the power of our own rites of passage. This same source added that most of us make little effort to understand the meanings of our own rituals or what ritual behavior implies. Consequently, we fail to comprehend or internalize the messages contained in ritual symbols, end quote. Seeking for meaning in rituals helps us to internalize the intent of Christ's teaching. Rituals lead us to conversion. Converted disciples walk in Christ's light and are not deceived. Understanding how to approach a ritual helps us to make the ordinary into meaningful, symbolic experiences. One of my favorite researchers on ritual is a woman named Barbara Feiss. She describes ritual as a symbolic event that has three fundamental parts. And by noting these three things, you can ritualize anything. The parts are this. First, we prepare for the event. Second, we participate in the event with great intention. And third, we reminisce the event. These three elements of a ritual can and often do overlap one another. For instance, I may be participating in an event while reminiscing another event or preparing by thinking of another event, but participation is the primary and predominant feature. And so in doing this, within the context of a ritual, a group or community defines themselves and demonstrates their values and beliefs through the use of artifacts, symbols, and communication. Any ordinary occurrence can become sacred when the act is planned for, participated with intention, and then reminisced. Think about doing this when you're making your bed or driving the carpool, studying for an exam, eating a meal with a loved one, studying the scriptures, praying. Everything we do can become a sacred ritual performance. We can emulate the life of the master by doing ordinary things with great intent. While all of Christ's deeds were purposeful, none were more meaningful than the final hours of his life. In his last 24 hours of mortality, he taught his disciples in a way to protect them and enlighten them for the remainder of their lives. In an upper room, he gathered his disciples for the most important Passover meal. This season for the Jews of recognizing the destroying angel passing over the children of Israel was about to take on new meaning as the Paschal Lamb was soon to be sacrificed for the salvation of every sinful soul. This ritual was planned for, participated in with great intention, and remembered by all who participated in it, as well as any who have read and studied the event. The Lord's charge to make ready the Passover meal included the attendance of a temple ceremony that prepared and slew a lamb. The ceremony included chanting passages from Psalm 81. It also included the halal found in Psalm 113 through 18 with the response of, Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord. I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Herbs and unleavened bread were acquired to make the meal complete. These preparations were vital for the participation in the ritual feast. Together the holy men, one being unholy, gathered in this final supper. In this setting, the Lord identified his betrayer, cast him out, then performed the ordinances. The attendees needed to be worthy of partaking of the Lord's Supper, particularly because this meal was part of an important work of completing the law of Moses. I love the way Elder Maxwell teaches this. I quote, It is pleasant to suppose that this is the one Paschal Supper over which Jesus presided, and that therefore he offered the last symbolic sacrifice preparatory to his offering of the only real sacrifice, which would free men from their sins. If this is the case, the only sacrifice in which he involved himself, and there is a certain reverential fitness about such being the case, would be the symbolic one on Thursday, whose emblems betoken the infinite and eternal one on Friday. Thus he would endorse and approve all of the similitudes of the past and announce their fulfillment in him. Thus also would the past, the present, and the future all be tied together in him 
with the assurance held out to all the faithful of the ages that all who look to him and his atoning sacrifice shall be saved, end quote. The ritual of the Last Supper was a preparatory ritual for the ultimate sacrifice. Amulek describes it beautifully in the Book of Mormon. This great and last sacrifice brings salvation to all those who shall believe on his name, this being the intent of this last sacrifice, to bring about the bowels of mercy, which overpowereth justice and bringeth about means unto men, that they may have faith unto repentance. The sacrament was followed by the ordinance of washing of the feet and teaching exclusively found in John 13 through 17. The deliberate Messiah desired that his disciples be armed with righteousness, prepared for not only what the coming hours held for each of them, but also for their lifetime of persecution. They needed his light in order to not be deceived. The fundamental themes of the teachings captured by John pertain to serving and loving one another, showing love for the Lord by keeping the commandments and preparing for the promised comforter. Using powerful symbols of a vine and branches, he assures them that their good works will be purged, tested, and pruned in order to bring forth more fruit. Unlike the fig tree that had been cursed days before, the Lord's disciples are invited to bring forth good works to be fruitful. The great intercessory prayer demonstrates the profound unity between the Father and the Son. Here the Lord commits to making an intercession for all. He accounts for his mortal mission and pleads for us to become one as he and the Father are one. The pinnacle of the Lord's mortal mission begins in the weary journey to the Mount of Olives, the place of atonement. Every intentional deed he had performed in his lifetime prepared him for this singular experience. Yet his cognitive understanding of what he was to do did not match the experience, as Elder Maxwell teaches. Uttering words of submission and total surrender qualified him as the savior of the world. With great drops of blood, he bore the torments of pain, suffering sin, and the calamity of every human soul. The all-night trials led him to Golgotha. Here the experience of Gethsemane was repeated as he hung on the cross and completed his work of redemption. God the Father must have sequestered himself in the furthest corner of the universe during that unimaginably dark and lonely moment of death. Elder Talmadge teaches that the supreme sacrifice of the Son might be consummated in all its fullness. The Father seems to have withdrawn the support of his immediate presence while Jesus was on the cross, leaving to the Savior of men the glory of complete victory over the forces of sin and death. Christ's willingness to have trodden the winepress alone sheds the brightest and purest light on the human family in that brilliant and glorious moment of redemption. We commemorate and reignite this redemptive light in our weekly ritual of our Passover. The sacrament is our reminder of his sacrifices. We renew our covenantal commitment to walk with him. But does routine participation negate our opportunity for communion with the Lord. How can we approach this invitation to the Lord's Supper with greater intention, performing it as a sacred ritual, rich in symbolic meaning? First, we must come to understand the richness of its meaning. Elder Holland has taught on numerous occasions that we can do so. Please listen to this beautiful statement. Perhaps we do not always attach that kind of meaning to our weekly sacramental service. How sacred and holy is it? Do we see it as our Passover, remembrance of our safety and deliverance from redemption? With so very much at stake, this ordinance commemorating our escape from the angel of darkness should be taken more seriously than it sometimes is. It should be a powerful, reverent, and reflective moment. It should encourage spiritual feelings and impressions. As such, it should not be rushed. It is not something to get over so that the real purpose of the meeting can happen. This is the real purpose. And everything that is said or sung or prayed in those services should be consistent with the grandeur of this sacred ordinance. End quote. These few minutes each week are among the most significant rituals we participate in as Latter-day Saints. How then do we prepare for it and participate in it with greater meaning? Well, we're not required to slay a lamb, thank goodness, or gather herbs and unleavened bread. 
Ours is a careful preparation measured in deeds and efforts to remember all that we have promised to do. The passage of time between the partaking of sacrament from one week to the next is a cycle of preparation and remembrance. This is sacramental living. President Joseph Fielding Smith teaches that the sacrament is a renewal of our covenants and thus an incentive for righteousness. We measure our faith by our works. Thus our desires to prepare for the sacrament are performed with great faith, remembering the works of Jesus Christ and seeking to pattern our lives after him. President Smith has taught, if a man fully realizes that what it means when he partakes of the sacrament, that he covenants to take upon him the name of Jesus Christ and to always remember him and keep his commandments, and this vow is renewed week by week, do you think such a man will fail to pay his tithing? Do you think such a man will break the Sabbath day or disregard the word of wisdom? Do you think he will fail to be prayerful and that he will not attend his quorum duties and other duties in the church? It seems to me that such a thing as a violation of these sacred principles and duties is impossible when a man knows what it means to make such vows week by week unto the Lord and before the saints. If we have the right understanding, we will live in full accord with the principles of truth and walk in righteousness before the Lord. How can we receive his spirit otherwise? I can see the significance in the commandment the Lord has given us to assemble frequently and partake of these emblems in commemoration of his death. It is our duty to assemble and renew our covenants and take upon us fresh obligations to serve the Lord. End quote. The Holy Ghost guides and directs our preparations as we remember our covenants. It's a beautiful cycle of preparing and remembering, the two working in tandem. We can prepare specifically and deliberately in the hours and moments prior to partaking of the emblems of the sacrament. Elder Russell M. Nelson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles has taught, We commemorate his atonement in a very personal way. We bring a broken heart and a contrite spirit to our sacrament meeting. This is not a time for conversation or transmission of messages, but a period of sacred meditation as members prepare spiritually for the sacrament, end quote. Disciplining ourselves with quiet self-reflection transforms the power of the ritual. Ours is the offering of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. The requirement the Lord requested of the Nephites with the completion of the law of Moses. The way we converse and communicate is reflective of the value we place on the covenant we've renewed. We seek to mourn with those that mourn, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, to bless and to lift. This is demonstrated in the life of Sister Susan Bednar, the wife of Elder David A. Bednar. Elder Bednar says that Sister Bednar stands at the back of the chapel each week, just making a quiet observation. Sometimes she has a spiritual nudge to help someone right then. Other times it comes in a phone call or a note after the meeting. Always it's greeted with this, how did you know? She's quick to observe and helpful to meet the needs of others. It's a spiritual gift that she possesses, Elder Bednar says. Our preparation for the sacrament shapes the way we live our covenants. Coming to the Feast of the Lord's Supper each week with the desire to act in faith demonstrates our willingness to always remember him and thus do as we would do if he were here among us. Similarly, the way we participate in the actual rite matters very much. While the prayers and administration of the sacrament are prescribed, our receiving of the sacrament is not prescriptive. In those brief moments, we are invited to ponder the magnitude of the atonement while making our own sacrificial offering in the similitude of the Son, the offering of contrite brokenness. This is a moment of absolute focus and fixed determination to ponder anew what the Almighty can do. The actual participation in the ritual is brief, thus the prospect of reminiscing is expanded by continually preparing for the next opportunity to worship in the ritual of the sacrament. Isn't that a lovely idea that in this very moment we're preparing for our Sunday worship? In the case of this practice, the remembering is bound with a promise. In our willingness to strive to always remember him and keep his commandments, we're promised that we will have his spirit to be with us always. This is a promise we should all take at face value and trust that we can have this third member of the Godhead to walk with us always.
Establishing a priority of seeking the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost should be of utmost importance to each of us in our daily walk. In that upper room setting, the Savior promised, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The Holy Ghost's mission is to testify of Jesus Christ in the atonement. He bears witness of the pure light of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and the source of absolute truth. He is the protector of deception. This experience of ritualizing the sacrament has been a blessing in my life. Not long ago, I had a profound experience with partaking of the emblems of the sacrament. On this particular Sunday, I needed to be in two places at the same time. I haven't quite figured out how to do that. One was a ward conference. The other was a primary children's sacrament meeting presentation. I knew I could figure it out, and I could probably juggle it and find a way to be at both events in part. But I decided I needed to pray to know where the Lord wanted me to be. The answer was simple and came as a thought. The name of a man at our stake that was in a serious battle with cancer came to my mind. He lives in the ward that was having their ward conference. I went to his ward. As I sat in the back of the chapel, contemplating the prompt to be there, I found myself filled with emotion. While I didn't see this man in the congregation, I felt grateful that I had acted in obedience to the simple prompting. We were singing one of my favorite sacrament hymns, In Humility, Our Savior. The words penetrated my heart. In humility, our Savior, Grant thy spirit, here we pray, as we bless the bread and water in thy name this holy day. Let me not forget, O Savior, thou didst bleed and die for me when thy heart was stilled and broken on the cross of Calvary. Fill our hearts with sweet forgiving. Teach us tolerance and love. Let our prayers find access to thee in thy holy courts above. Then, when we have proven worthy of thy sacrifice divine, Lord, let us regain thy presence. Let thy glory round us shine. My whole soul seemed to be responding to the pleas of this song. I found myself reflecting on the atonement and my opportunity for change. I desired to understand more of the humility of our Savior. My heart desired an example in those first moments of the passing of the sacrament, I heard someone coming into the chapel. At the door was my friend, the man whose name had come to my mind that morning. He required the help of his brother, and he needed a walker. He was facing death, yet he slowly made his way to take his position at the right of his bishop as he was serving in the councilor in the bishopric. I watched him struggle. Unable to move on his own, I marveled as he took the steps to the rostrum. He didn't have to be there, nor did he need to take the place on the stand. The entire congregation seemed to be in awe of his effort to perform his duty of being where he was supposed to be. Tears freely flowed as I watched him, and the Spirit whispered to me, Here is an example of humble service. This was one of those precious parabolic moments filled with custom tutoring in response to my heartfelt need. In that moment, I had a clear view of myself in the true light of the sun. I could see more of my potential to be a dutiful disciple. The Spirit testified a simple truth to me. Jennifer, perform your duty with humility. Here was an example of an offering of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. I was changed by my friend's example. My friend died a few weeks later. At the viewing prior to the funeral service, his wife told me that he had awoken that morning and said he wanted to go bear his testimony in sacrament meeting. 
He didn't have the opportunity that day to stand and use words to testify. But he testified to all of us with his deeds. He exemplified his love for the Lord through his actions, reminding us that the Savior wants us to know him. Christ invites us to come quickly unto him. His love casts darkness away. We're protected from deception when we choose to walk in his light, as we see ourselves as we really are and as we really can be. This true, honest, penetrating light shows us the truth of all things. Indeed, our Savior's love shines like the sun with perfect light. He lights our way, leading us back into his light to share eternal life. I know this is true. And in this Easter season, I bear witness of him with an unwavering love and desire to be like him. May the Lord bless you as you seek to walk in the light of his love is my prayer. In the sacred and holy name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Walking in the Lord's Way. We've just heard from Jennifer Brinkerhoff Platt. After the break, we'll return with Rosemary M. Wixom for The Covenant Path. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Walking in the Lord's Way. Next is Rosemary M. Wixom, Primary General President of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled The Covenant Path. I am honored for the opportunity to speak to you today. I love to come to the BYU campus, and I stand before you as true blue. As it has already been said, my shade of blue was painted in Cache Valley at Utah State University. My husband's blue has a reddish tint. And our children are various hues. Yet, when we see the color blue, any blue, we cheer. There is something very stimulating about a university campus. Where there is a learning atmosphere, there is energy, and increasing your knowledge is progressive. You are advancing on the path of life. Now, you may be puzzled at today's devotional and may be asking, what does the primary general president have to say to me? After all, many of you graduated from primary years ago, and you have put away those childish things. Yet, the messages and the principles of the songs you sang in primary still apply, and hopefully they have remained in your heart. Today we sang, I Will Follow God's Plan. We sang the words, My life is a gift, my life has a plan. My life has a purpose, in heaven it began. As a student on this campus, you are progressing with your plan. You have a purpose in mind. Can you see the Lord's hand in your life? Can you see the path you took to get here? I was born in Ogden, Utah, grew up in Salt Lake City, and at age 18, when I was about to leave to go to Utah State, my goals were simple. I really had just two. I'm going to be honest with you and tell you what they were. Number one, I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. Number two, I wanted to fall in love. Now, that seems simple, but I really did not think beyond those two goals. I hoped that somewhere out there there was a handsome young man who also had the goal to stay on the path, get an education, and fall in love so we could marry, have a family, and bring children into this world. But I was anxious and nervous inside. What if my plan did not unfold how I wanted it to? and when I wanted it to. I was looking at the path through a magnifying glass, and all I could see was my shoelaces. I remembered those lessons in primary about the plan of salvation. I could see the circles and arrows on the chart, but I could not yet visualize myself in the plan. 
I wish I would have had the words of the chorus of this primary song then. They read, I will follow God's plan for me, holding fast to His word and His love. I will work and I will pray and I will always walk in His way, and then I will be happy on earth and in my home above. That is the key. It's really quite simple. I will follow God's plan for me. And we do it by holding fast to His word, His love, and our prayers to Him while simply living life. Brigham Young said, Live so the spirit of our religion lives within us. End of quote. We are a making and keeping covenant people, and nothing, nothing better shapes us than the sacred covenants we have made to our, our Heavenly Father. Living these covenants is when we follow His plan and we come to know who we really are. George Bernard Shaw said, Life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. That is true. I think of it this way. There are those who see themselves on this earth as simply growing up, helpless in a way. They eat, they sleep, they live their lives. They watch themselves getting taller and older. They let the world mold them and allow their circumstances to dictate their future. It is as if they are watching the wind swirl around a block of sandstone. The years go by until finally, one day, a shape is created. Or we can decide the kind of person we want to become, grip the chisel, and go to work. The sculpture being created is now of our creation. At times, we may even stand back in awe at the form it is taking. The pinnacle of our reality is when we come to know we are not alone in our work. The real artist is standing at our side, and his vision for this exquisite piece is beyond our comprehension. Elder Joseph B. Worthland said, We see ourselves in terms of yesterday and today. Our Heavenly Father sees us in terms of forever. Although we might settle for less, Heavenly Father won't. For He sees us as the glorious beings we are capable of becoming. End of quote. It is as if the Lord has given us tools with which to create this being. These tools are the covenants we make and keep, beginning with the baptismal covenant. A covenant is personal. It is so personal that it is given to us individually, and often our very own name is said in conjunction with the ordinance that accompanies the covenant. By living our covenants with the Lord's help, He sculpts us into a masterpiece. Think, for example, of the baptismal covenant. Lately, I have viewed the covenant of baptism through a granddaughter's eyes. Meet Lucy Catherine. She is three years old, and in her world she is a princess. She is beginning this earthly path. Can you see how she takes after her grandmother? Here I am with my twin sister. I'm one of these little three-year-olds. I'm just not sure which one. <laughs> Lucy is my buddy. She loves to climb up into my lap, and together we watch the Bible videos on my iPad. She can operate the iPad all by herself. Her favorite Bible video is Jesus being baptized in the River Jordan. Lucy is only three years old. But she feels something when she watches Jesus being baptized, and so do I. Elder Robert D. Hale said, Many members of the Church do not fully understand what happened when they went into the waters of baptism. He asks us, Do we understand that when we were baptized we were changed forever? Our baptism and confirmation is the gateway into His kingdom. And when we enter, we covenant to be of His kingdom forever. End of quote. We see powerful evidences of the magnitude of the baptismal covenant in the history of the Church. In Liverpool, England in the 1840s, George Cannon and his wife Anne Quayle Cannon were converted to the gospel. Anne wrote in her journal, 
I was sincerely desirous to lead a new life, though slow of belief at first and of seeing the necessity of baptism, God in His infinite mercy opened my eyes. With the covenant of baptism and the promise of more covenants came the desire to join the Saints in America at all costs. Anne tucked away a little money each month so the family would have the funds necessary for the voyage. The wish to get to Zion became her consuming desire. She began to count the days that must elapse before the ship's sailing, for she was impressed that if the season should pass and find the family still in England, she would not be alive to take the journey another year. She had a premonition that she would not live to reach the shores of America, and she told her husband so. At the time, she was expecting their seventh child, and George tried to persuade her to wait, but she refused absolutely. She would rather die in trying to go than live remaining behind. Both George and Anne prayed that God's blessings would attend them in doing what they believed to be His will. On September 17, 1842, George and Anne and their six children boarded the ship and set sail for America. George later wrote, We are now launched on the bosom of the mighty deep, and the seasickness has made the passengers for the most part very ill. My dear Anne is dreadfully affected with this nauseous sickness. Yet I have never heard one complaint from her on her own account. She regrets at not being able to assist me in the care of the children. The days and weeks went by, and Anne only worsened. On October 28th, she passed away. George wrote, O God, how mysterious are Thy ways! Teach me resignation to Thy will. Both George and Anne Quayle Cannon understood the promise. The Lord God will proceed to make bare His arm in bringing about His covenants and His gospel unto those who are of the house of Israel. George and Anne Cannon lived their lives keeping their covenant of baptism and the promise of more covenants while carving out a future for their posterity. What did they understand clearly about the covenant of baptism? What was it that drove George and Anne to come to America at all costs? They were simply doing what they believed to be the Lord's will. Today we are not asked to move to Salt Lake City after our baptism, but we enter into sacred covenants with God. We promise to do three things—to take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ, to keep His commandments, and to always remember Him. How can we take upon ourselves the name of Christ today? We do more than represent Him and follow Him. We see ourselves as His. We put Him and His work first in our life. We seek what He wants rather than what we want or what the world teaches us to want. How can we live that baptismal covenant in our daily lives here as students at BYU? It's a process. And oftentimes we wrestle to align our lives with the Father's will. At times we may even question our judgment. We may rationalize our actions and say, but others are doing it. The choices we make follow us into our classrooms, in our conversations, with our callings, and on our dates. The results may alter after how we dress, our appearance, what we text, the movies we see our very thoughts. When we seek His will, He will magnify our every effort to stay on the path back to Him. We need not ever feel alone. Be patient with yourself as you learn this process. Our prayers may become different, and we may find ourselves asking, What would Thou have me do? And help me know what is Thy will. We find ourselves stepping out of the boat, so to speak, to do His will. We prepare spiritually each day with personal prayers to Him. We read His words in the scriptures, and then we trust that He will guide us. His will then becomes ours. Elder David A. Bednar said, You exercised your moral agency to accept the conditions of the baptismal covenant, and as a representative of Jesus Christ, your life is no longer just about what you want, but what God wants for you. End of quote.
Missionaries all over the world literally take upon themselves the name of Christ when they put on that missionary badge. We witnessed prophetic revelation last October 6th when Thomas S. Monson, our president, announced the change in missionary age. The response has been astounding. We are witnessing a modern-day miracle in these latter days. Many of you have experienced a mission, and you know what it's like. It's not easy. When I served my first mission with my husband in my first sentence in my first letter home to both our children and to my parents who had served, I asked, Why didn't you tell me a mission was this hard? When it becomes impossible to carry on, it is that covenant to do the Lord's will that causes a missionary to find a private place and get on his or her knees. His or her prayer may be, I cannot do this alone. Only with Thee can I continue. Only with Thee can I learn another language. And only with Thee can I teach those older, wiser, and more articulate than I. A mission changes one's life for the better because we take upon us His name. When we are baptized, we covenant to keep His commandments. This commitment to come into God's kingdom separates, but as Elder Robert D. Hales notes, not isolates us from the world as we stand as a witness of God at all times and in all things and in all places. We stand as a witness means to include everything we do and say. In living the baptismal covenant, we look for ways to keep the commandments rather than looking around or looking for ways around them. While I was visiting Buenos Aires, Argentina, I met Marianella, a frail, beautiful mother with two children, ages 9 and 12. All three had been baptized. She was dealing with severe rheumatoid arthritis. She could only stand or lie down. She could not sit. At home, she taught her children with what resources she had. She used both the scriptures and the Relief Society manual. I noticed those two books stacked neatly on her table. She wanted her children to keep the commandments and to partake and participate on Sunday and partake of the sacrament. So she accepted the bishop's wife's invitation to pick them up weekly. Marianella would ride to church lying down in the back seat of a car. It was her way of practicing obedience and aligning her heart with His. In primary, we sing the words, Keep the commandments. In this there is safety, and in this there is peace. There was peace in Marianella's home. I saw another example of keeping the commandments in the Alagan stake in the Philippines. Just before the meeting began, I watched a large truck pull up to the chapel entrance. I could see the arms of the members reaching through the slats on the side of the truck to wave to the others in the parking lot. The truck was covered with a canvas top. Out jumped numerous happy Filipinos, the men in their white shirts and ties and the women in their dresses. I learned they had ridden for hours to get there, bouncing on the wooden benches inside the truck. We all hurried into the building and sat down. I thought of their sacrifice to be there. And then the tears streamed down my face as they sang the opening song. With smiles they began to sing, Because I have been given much. Part of keeping the commandments is serving the Lord. President Lugo, the president of the Alagan Stake, was a tiny little man with great faith. He had the image of the Savior in his countenance. I learned that he had been in a serious cycle accident and had been in the hospital. It was nearing the time in their stake for their youth to take their yearly trip to the temple to do baptisms for the dead. He was devastated at the thought of not going with the youth, but he could not walk. His wife said, You cannot go. If you go, the youth will have to carry you, and that would be asking too much. President Lugo said, If they carry me into the temple, I will walk out. 
And that is exactly what he did. How can we possibly draw limits on our service to the Lord? As we keep our covenant to always remember the Lord, He will help us follow His plan. Let's be honest. While trying to live our covenants, we sometimes do get discouraged. We may see nothing but our imperfections. We may think our mistakes are impossible to repair, and we may think we cannot change. We may feel like we are failing. As we chisel in the sandstone to create this new self, we sometimes chip off huge chunks of stone that may appear to disfigure our ultimate goal. Like Nephi, we may say, O wretched man or woman that I am, we may lose hope and fear there is no way to repair our mistakes. But the real artist, Jesus Christ, patiently and lovingly stands by our side and waits for us to ask for His help. You see, He is ready to heal us. Then, like Nephi, with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, we may ask, Wilt thou redeem my soul? Will thou encircle me in the robe of thy righteousness? Will thou make my path straight before me? O Lord, I have trusted in thee, and I will trust in thee forever. Our real blessing is that this Sunday we will again have the opportunity to renew the covenant we made at baptism as we partake of the sacrament with the glorious promise that we may always have His Spirit to be with us. No wonder it refers to baptism in Romans chapter 6 when it reads, Walk in the newness of life. That newness of life is the Atonement working within us, and we can experience it weekly. The artist Jesus Christ is our Savior and Redeemer. He was foreordained to carry out the Atonement to come to earth, suffer the penalty for our sins, die on the cross, and be resurrected. He will not halt the sculpturing process or put down the chisel until we are perfect and living in His presence. The Atonement is the supreme expression of the Savior's love for the Father and for us. The sculptor Michelangelo, when asked how he had produced the magnificent statue of an angel, is reported to have simply replied, I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. And so it is with the mutual effort of a loving Savior and a covenant-keeping disciple on the path. The angel is within each one of us. Let us live the covenant we made at baptism and seek to do His will. We will watch the plan He has masterfully created for each one of us take shape. Regardless of its form, we will stand in awe as the angel emerges. And we will give credit to our Savior Jesus Christ, for He is the perfect artist. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Walking in the Lord's Way, with thoughts from Jennifer Brinkerhoff Platt and Rosemary M. Wixom. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.